I would like to elaborate upon a theme, theme in our parasha, which I began to develop in the podcast, which I sent earlier in the week, and now we will expand upon it. We were discussing how Parshas Noah is a take-two story, that after the creation of the world and Parshas Bereshus largely fails. The project called The World is a Failure, Mankind is a Failure. Ribbon Olam floods the world into oblivion. The Ribbon Olam is restarting the world and thus modeling for all of us the ability to have the courage and the grit to renew and renew. So often projects, Ruchni is stick of projects, Gashmi is stick of projects, don't work. And it is so bruising, so hurtful to have failures. And the tenacity to restart and to give it another shot takes real courage. And I was suggesting that Kibbe Yachol the Ribbon Shalom is modeling for us in Parshas Noach in the new world this courage and regret and grit to renew and renew. So what I would like to do now is to develop Parshas Noach in this perspective. To demonstrate that the model is not simply a disruption to the world and then followed by a resumption of the old world. But no, the marble was actually a deconstruction of my separations, in a sense. The Ribbon Sha'olam was ready and willing to seemingly throw in the towel. I had enough of this world. But then recreate the world. And we will see how piece by piece in a perfect pattern every part of Parshas Noach can be seen as a Parshas voracious take to in perfect symmetry when we trace it carefully so for starters my theory, my thesis, that the marble was not simply a disruption, but is supposed to be seen conceptually as an undermining of my separation, as the Ribbona Sha'olam throwing in the towel. No pun intended when we're talking about a pretty wet scene. Well, several clues. Clue number one. My separation is staged or frameworked by Vayihi Era Vayihi Vote. It was night and it was day. The process of night and day is the rhythm creates the pulse of my separations. Well, during the Mabo, we know the division of night and day ceased to be, as the Torah tells us after the Mabo. No longer will day and night cease to be. Unlike during the time of the Mamba when day and night cease to be because the celestial 
orbits were not functioning properly. Well, more than simply a great cosmic catastrophe that during the novel the celestial beings cease to be. I believe the Chumash is highlighting that Yom and Lila cease to be because the novel is supposed to be seen as an undermining of my separation in, the, in its most fundamental and primal sense. Day and night, the very rhythm of my separation cease to be. And perhaps there is even a touching... inverse clue in the Torah using the Lashon Shabbos to describe the day and night season to be. After the Mabel, Lila will be Yom unlike during the Mabel, where Yom and Lila were Shabbos, day and night ceased to be. So in a master stroke of irony, like any good human author does, the divine author HaKadosh Baruch uses inverse language, I suggest. Unlike the Shabbos of my separations, which signified a rest of job done, job well done, the Shabbos, the cessation of marble, day and night cease to be, has the opposite. So this is one clue, one clue that the marble is a an undermining or deconstruction of my separations, but there are more clues. And as with every pattern, the pattern becomes convincing and compelling the more clues we amass. Moving because, because moving beyond the cessation of day and night, there's another powerful clue. And that is when we think about where the water of the marble came from. Where did the water of the marble come from? Well, one of the sources of water we are told is rain. But hold on here. Was the rainwater of the marble standard rainwater as we know it coming from the clouds? I think the Chumash is describing something else. The Chumash speaks about Arubos Hashamayim Niftachu. The skylights of heaven open. Think about that imagery in all of its gripping, visceral power for a minute. The skylight of heaven opened. To me, that connotes there's a big hole in the heaven and the water is coming down from above the heaven. This is not clouds below the heaven emitting rain. But this is water from above the heavens, sending down rain through the skylight of heaven. Because, of course, we know from Beratius that there's a concept of Mayan Elyonim. There are waters that are above the Rakia, the ferment. The ferment's whole purpose was Lahab Dilbi Nayan Mayan, to separate between the upper and the lower waters. Now, perhaps you will tell me that this term, the skylight of heaven opening, is not literal, but is more of a figure of speech. As we say in English, when it's really raining hard, the heavens themselves have opened. So we could quibble and debate this. How literal is the expression skylight of heaven? Is it in fact connoting a paranormal event that 
actually the heavens open and the water came from above? Or is it simply describing what it seemed like or what it felt? It felt like the very heavens opened because this rain was totally normal. I am open to either possibility, depending how miraculous and how rationalistic you want to approach the text. I'm open to either mahalk. It won't change the fact that what is the Torah trying to convey? What did it? What was the sensation as it was going on? The sensation was abnormal rain, either literally or giving off the feeling that no longer was there a kia separating between the upper and the lower waters, i.e. an undermining of the second day of creation, the creation of the rakia. Now that's not just happening as a happenstance effect, but rather very clearly pointing towards there was a deconstruction here of mass separations. One more clue. Along with the water, along with the rainwater, there was another source of water. What does the Chumash at the time of the Mahal? What does the Chumash tell us? In addition to Aruba Sashanayim Nebtahu, water came from Tahom Rabbah, the great depth. Geysers and the like spouted forth water. Now, interesting that the rainwater was insufficient. The Rebona Sha'olam also utilized another vehicle. This spouting forth from the Tahom. There must be a meaning. There must be a message to this. Well, learning the Chumash within its own internal rhythm this reference to the Tahom evokes the first Tahom in Chumash. What is the first reference to Tahom, the great deep in Chumash? The previous Tahom story begins with what? The Chayshech Apnei Sahom, Baruch Al-Kimar A lot of water, deep, dark, gloomy water on the face of the deep. Here we have destructive waters from the Tahom so clearly evoking the abysmal waters of the Tahoe in the beginning of mass separations. The, the, the evocative imagery is unmistakable because what the Mambo was doing was the Mambo is undermining and deconstructing the entire mass separations, which is portrayed in Chumash as giving order to the waters of the Tahoe. And so here we have multiple textual clues, elegant textual clues, from the cessation of day and night to the cessation of the rakiyas available for separating the, the upper waters to the reemergence of the gloomy waters of the Tahom, pointing to the fact that Ribbon Shalom was deconstructed as my separations. Because we are supposed to see the model, as we said, as the model of project is off. Throw this one into the wasteland. And feel the depressing power of failure. Or so should seem Which of course sets the stage for the post-mobile world. In which HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, but I'm going to do this again. The rehabilitation of the world after the model 
I believe, was supposed to be studied as a misabrachus egg. That I would like to suggest we can have a newfound appreciation for a somewhat enigmatic narrative of the parish. The parish describes with great specificity and detail the protracted diminishing of the water. The water settles a little more, and then the table lands on the mountaintops, and then a little more, you can see the top of the mountains, and then eventually Noah sends out birds. The birds don't have where to go, but then the Yonah does find branches in which to nest them. The Chumash is very, seemingly very verbose in its description of the protracted settling of the water. Why? Well, I believe it's trying to convey, just like the original My Separatius was a slow protracted process represented by the six days of creation, well, this is supposed to come across that way as another my separation reflected by almost an evolution of sorts. In the Bria process, that's my heritage, that's my feeling, but I want to ground this even more. I want to find an explicit clue in the Tyrus description of the settling of the water and the rehabilitation of the world, which points to this is a Maisebracious take too, as the Rebunashon is Kibiyaha plowing ahead and teaching us. Do this one over again. Hmm? Did you look at the deconstruction part as the stages of the model? A little further, like when the Torah talks about everybody dying, does it say first of the Hamas dying and then the other, just like the opposite of the Maria? I don't remember. Look in the words the Chumash and get back to me if if, you, if you're Markish if you feel if you feel that way it never spoke that way to me but it would be compelling if we could bring that out in the Pesach yeah, yes it would be very compelling it never spoke that way to me listen to this Let's read carefully the parasha the narrative about sending out the birds the Orev and then the Yonah Yonah sends them out multiple times. Yonah sends them out multiple times, the Yonah and then the Yonah times. How often does he wait between each step sending out the birds? The Chumash is quite clear. He waited how many days? Seven days. Now already the seven days is suggestive here. Of something. Why do I care how long he waited between sending out the birds? Well, seven days has an unmistakable association to the Shivas Yamim of creation, that the rehabilitation of the world which these birds are coming to validate and confirm is a Bria take. That's a gentle clue. I want to buttress it. Well, let's look at how the Chumash describes the bird, ultimately the Yonah's quest. What is the Yonah seeking? What is the Chumash saying? Vilomotza Hayona Manoach. The Yona could not find rest, a landing space or rest, until it eventually does in the final seven day process. Now that word, rest, Menucha, is a Shabbos word. The Yona initially could not find Menucha, but in the final process of the seven days, it did find Menucha. Here we have both seven days. And a reference to finding Menucha as the Yonah seeking landing space to represent our ability to re-settle the world. So clear. 
the Chumash is coming to convey. This is another Shabbos process. This is another Bria process. Not only for the Yonah, but more importantly for the world at large. In fact, I'm going to suggest that I'm not the first one to note this pair. Both the Shabbos Yavim and the Menucha. But perhaps without realizing it, Yidin, Jews all over the world, say this whole shtickle tire every Shabbos without realizing it. Have you ever thought about the Ibn Ezra's Nigan Shabbos morning? Zemmer Shabbos morning? Listen to the words carefully. Yona Matzah The Yona found Menucha on this day of Shabbos. How does the Ibn Ezra know that? Well, perhaps he has a Medrash, but how does the Medrash know that? Well, it is so clear. The Zemmer is capturing the words of the Chumash. The Yona was seeking Menucha in a seven-day process which corresponds to Shabbos. And enshrining this Zamar into the Shabbos observance, into the Suda Shabbos. Ibn Ezra is saying that the Yona finding the Nucha, but more largely the rehabilitation of the world after the Mabal, is a paradigm of Shabbos, a paradigm of creation, no less than the original creation. Because this is actually the creation that you and I are living in, the creation and the Shabbos which sustains itself. This creation and this Shabbos take two. Because the Rebona Shaolim is doing this one over. And the pattern continues. Noah, who's the new patriarch, as we discussed in the podcast, we trace that he is the Adam take two. When he steps out of the table, the Torah says, Vayomer Hashem told him by and likewise Hashem blessed him. Puravu, those very same words, Vayomer Vayavarach, Hashem both told and blessed man, appeared, of course, in Adam's forerings to the new world of Parshish Parishas. And in almost a cut and paste, the Torah uses the very same words. He said and he blessed. Puravu. This is resurfacing in Noah as he makes his debut in the new world. Because it is, in fact, the Parishas And the pattern only continues, the symmetry continues, and becomes even more dramatic. Because you understand, because Parshas Noah is a serious take to, is a serious effort to be Yahon Hashem's part, to show tenacity. Noah is not going to have it easier than others. He too is going to have to grapple with some of the very same issues. Which takes us now to a revolutionary new understanding of Adam, Noah's first failing in his new world. We know that Noah struggles with intoxication and the vineyard. Said Noah had an addiction. He had alcoholics unanonymous. Right? We know Noah's story lives on in it. But I think it's more than a story about alcohol. In the context of St. Fabricius, does not Noah struggle with the vineyard with forbidden fruit? Echo of the first struggle of man and woman with the forbidden fruit? Not only are both forbidden fruit, both the eight tadas 
and the vineyard. But we know there's an opinion in Chazal that eight shalach from the Manawatam Harishan was Gafet. That the eight Hadas was a vineyard. And here we have Nachamal, the patriarch of mankind, struggling with the Gafet. And the more we think about this, an intriguing Eureka light bulb goes off. Not only is that forbidden fruit and a vineyard in both cases, but what happened when Noah imbibed the forbidden fruit? The stigmatizing scene of Noah rolling around naked Arab. Well, that is exactly the design of Charetz Hadas. This shameful expose of nakedness seen in a shameful life. The coincidence is too great. It is too evocative that reappears. But in case one does not pick up on the eight Hadas take two in the vineyard, there's a final elegant clue which can be traced in, in Rashi's sight of the matter. Listen to this, Rashi. Rashi in our parsha is dealing with a, a technical question of sorts. Where did Noah find this guy? It's kind of like asking, where did college students find weed before they started to permit cannabis in the state of Maryland? Maybe that's not a question. Right? Uh, but no joking. I mean, in, in the United States, we know there's so many apple trees. I was taught at grade school because Johnny Appleseed planted all those apple trees, right? So they taught me, right? Well, who was Johnny Grapeseed? Rashi wants to know love. Go back in the days of Noch to plant these grapes. So Rashi says that what? Said in the Madras, Noch was well prepared. Despite never serving in the Boy Scouts, he, know, oh, he knew always come prepared. And what does Rashi say? A year prior, in, t- in the Teva, he brought... Gephanim, or in Rashi's word, Zemoros, he brought great branches with him. Fair enough to replant after. Rashi says a little more than that, Simon the Rashi says, Noah brought Zemoros v'yichure te'ena, grapevines and fig branches into the table. Now, why does Rashi mention the fig, fig branches? I don't know about you, but certainly when I present... I never try to confuse an audience by introducing extraneous information. It's not helpful. Rashi's coming to explain why Noah, where Noah found the vineyard from. Why does Rashi throw in that he also slept on fig branches? There must be a reason. There must be a significance to the fig branches. But realizing that the story of Noah's vineyard is supposed to be an eight Hadas take two, of course we know why Rashi's mentioned the fig branches. Because fig branches are so evocative in the eight Hadas story. Whether on a level of shot in terms of the Ali Ta'ina, the fig branches, famously immortalized in Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, Abdul the Abdul's, right? Um, the fig branch, the Ali, ta- the Ali Ta'ina, in which Ottoman Chab closed themselves, or according to a day in Chazal that perhaps the Tzadas itself consisted of Ta'ina. That is what Yashi's introducing. So we have so many clues. The wine, the forbidden fruit, the shameful nakedness, the, the fig branches. So many indications this is an Tzadas take two. Why is this happening? But don't you see it's perfectly staged in the text? Because Parshas Noah is a safer Parshas Branches take two. The Rebona Shavu I'm redoing this thing. And I'm going to deal with mankind struggling with the same type of struggles. 
and perhaps we're seeing it more powerful than in the second try. It's not a cakewalk either. Man is messing up again on much the same mistakes. But perhaps there's a baby step of improvement. Because unlike the Eitz where man defiantly violated an explicit seemingly explicit commandment of Hashem, don't eat from the tree. Here man simply made a bad moral decision. Hashem never told him to not imbibe Yah. Simply a bad moral decision. Perhaps that symbolizes a baby step of improvement. Well, the elegance of this pattern certainly leads us to believe there's more to be revealed here in Parshas The subsequent steps of Parshas the subsequent stages in the story, are going to represent subsequent stages of Parshas Brachus. Now, in a take two of sorts, as the Rebbeim shows his willingness, his kiviyachol, great encourage to renew it. Because let's move on now from Noach, Adam take two of his struggles, to Noach's children, Shame Chamaniyafes. We get to think if we can find in the story of Shame Chamaniyafes some sort of parallel to the issues of, amongst Adam's children. So interestingly, there's three children in both stories. Adam and Chava have three children, ultimately, kind of have on that chase, and just like Noah has Shem And, just as we find a certain rift amongst Adam's children, kind kills Hal, well, there's a rift of sorts, or a divergence of moral decision on the part of Noah's children, that Ham mocks his father's nakedness, unlike Shem and Yefes, who promote Kavadav and Kavadabrias. Is there a pattern here? Well, perhaps this connection between Noah's children and Adam's children sounds a little tenuous or loose to And after all, Cain killed his brother. That's a dramatic scene. Where do we find that in the story of Shem Excellent. So, let's turn to Chazal. Chazal is cited by Rashi. Explaining the story of Shem Chamaniyafes, and really explaining the rather nondescript pasuk that Cham peered at Ervas Avat, his father's name, which is suggestive there was more going on than simply looking at it. But this is Lashanaki, this is euphemistic language for something a little more risque. But one of the days in Chazal tells. Cham sees his Cham castrated his father. No, very sick thing to do. And why did he do this? To simply quote the words of the Chazal, regardless how you interpret them. The Cham said, "Hey, remember the days of old, Cain and Hevel back in the days in the Adam family? They killed each other. Al Yerusha Saolam. They killed each other over a, a dispute of who would inherit the world." Well, says Cham, "Bros, we got the same problem here." We have a Yerusha Solomon dispute. Who's going to inherit the world? How are we going to divvy up this pie called the universe? And father might have another son? Who's going to introduce another rival? Huh. Then the rift will be even more out of hand. I'm going to castrate my father to impede the birth of another child. Now, do you notice 
how our attempt to find a reference to Kain Hagel in the story of Shem Chama Yafas is now explicit in the Rashi. By Ham's own admission, he is grappling with the ghost of Kain, or the skeleton of Hagel, you might say, in the closet here. He is seeing himself, and his, from his perception, his brothers are having, having Kain Hagel sort of room. Clue one. But clue two, as Rebushi said, by castrating his father, he is functionally killing his brother. His brother in potential. Junior. Just like Kain killed The pattern is unmistakable, especially in light of the larger pattern. Noah has a voracious tent. Again, I would suggest Hashem has given mankind similar challenges on Kibiachim and Hashem's part, demonstrating a willingness to put up with mankind. Mankind's here we go again. But again, perhaps there's baby steps of improvement. It's not quite as bad. The Sheikh Kain actually kills a brother. Kain is simply impeding the birth of a brother. It's not the same subtle, but I think meaningful. I think showing, showing the very soft, gentle wind of Tika. Ever so slightly, perhaps, there are baby steps of improvement, which Kibiyachal, the Ribbona Sha'olam, is banking on, in terms of investing in his world take two and other mankind take now let's continue along these lines. Again, the power of any pattern in Tyra's in the perfection of its scope. As we expand this thread, and we see the entire Parshish Nile symmetrically aligned. At the end of Parshish Nile, there was a great critique. The Migdal Babel, Darha Flaga story, generation of dispersion, power of Babel. Which I'm going to suggest aligns with the end of Parvis Bracious when there's a great catastrophe called the Daramab. Both are called Dar generations, Daramab and Daraflaka, at the end of the two respective parishes. Both are extensively compared by Chazal. We have Mishnahis throughout Shas that talk about Daramab and Daraflaka side by side, whether the mission in Sanhedrin that says both. Daramab and Daraflaka in Lamchechol and Haber and Hashir in the world to come, or the Mishnah above Metzila that tells us Misha Par Miyashi Darhamab and Miyashi Darhaflaka. It speaks of Hashem as the one who took retribution from Daramab and Daraflaka. But the as a bulwark against the Mabel, very good, but there are further indicators whether. The statement of Chazal that they believed they were creating a bulwark of sorts against the second mob, which now is not just some weird, imaginative uh, fantasy there's going to be another mob, perhaps shows there was real potential for a mob take too. But more than that, there are many clues in the Torah linking to our Hamabal to our You have loose clues. In both cases, you have a reference to Giborim, strong men, whether in the Mabel story at the end of Gracious, who's the giants or Giborim, and in the story of Darhaflaga, it speaks about Nimrod, the leader of Darhaflaga, who was called Huachalios Giber Baaretz, 
you'll notice in both stories, Rashi uses very similar words. He describes the giants of the Mabal as Gipolim Limru Bamakim, strong rebels against Hashem, and he describes Nimrod as the leader of Darflak in similar terms. But there are even more exciting clues of connection. I believe you'll find the word Mabal as in Darhamabal reappearing in the Darhamabal story. Well, one of the definitions of Mabal, according to Rashi, is Mabal Milashen, Bilbal. Mabal is from the word mixture. There was great chaos. The soil turned over at the time of the Mabal. Well, the location of the Middabal, the tower in the second story, is the place becomes called Bavel. And the word Bilbo, mixture, they mix their languages. This is, by the way, the source of the English expression about a baby baby's babble, as in the baby mixed. The chaos of unintelligible words. Bil- Bilbo, babble, Tower of Babel, babbling. Just an interesting idea. But my point is, I believe it's not a coincidence that the term Mabla, the Russian Bilbo, reappears in the, in the Haflaga story. One more clue I'll tell you. Perhaps the most exciting with this hopefully rest our case that the Haflag of the Mabal take to. There's a fascinating measure cited by Rashi regarding the location of this town. The Middabava, we are told, was built by Eric Shinar in an area of ancient Mesopotamia called Shinar. Shinar, fair enough? That's what Mesopotamia, the area of Mesopotamia was called. It's the first time we. By the way, if you've ever studied Mesopotamian ancient civilizations such as Mesopotamia, you will notice there's an area called Sumer. I believe Sumer is the translation of Shinar. But the Medrash gives another read of Shinar. The Medrash is cited by Rashi says, you know, Shinar, the place of the Mental means? Shaniniru. It floated there. Shaniniru Shamese Mabal. The corpses of the Mabal floated down to that basin, a deep basin in the ground. Between the Tigris and the Euphrates, the corpses of Darhamabal floated down there, the, cor- the bodies which were the bodies of the individuals who drowned in the Mabal waters. They kind of settled down in the valley. Well, I have a question for you. A Torah's Chaim, a relevant, a, a meaningful. Torah, why is it focusing on the fact that the place of the Middal happens to consist of soil decomposed bodies from the Mabal? Why do I care? I am not studying anthropology, archaeology, geology. I want meaning. I want to understand what the Mikdal Bavel was about conceptually. Why is it telling me Shinar, that where the tower is, that's where the body's the Mabal? There must be symbolic meaning to that. The tower is being built upon the residue, the human residue of the Mabal, as in those decomposed corpses that now have become part of parcel of the soil at the foundation of the tower. Well, now so clearly we see this is to represent the tower was building upon the marble. It was a marble take to, in a sense, because and it results in another global catastrophe, just like the marble. The first civilization was wiped out, and the second civilization disbanded. But again, there's a here we go again. 
But it's not as bad as the first time. Dar Hamaba was thoroughly destroyed. Dar Haflaga simply becomes a chaotic, disparate society. Hashem is staying with this project of take two and the baby steps of improvement. And then finally, at the end of the parasha, the parasha concludes with a long genealogical tree. Ela told of shame, and it lists all the generations through shame the son of Noah, all the way down to whom? Avram, Avram. Well, the same thing happens at the end of Bracious. Parashas Bracious says, with a genealogical tree from Adam down to Noah. Now, you will notice something. Both of these two respective parashas end with genealogical trees, and both use very similar language. At the end of Bracious, it says, Zase for Toldos Adam, and at the end of Parashas Noah, it says, Eila Toldos Shay. And just as Parashas Bracious is tracing down ten generations from Adam to Noah, Avram is appearing in Parashas Noah as the tenth generation. And just like Parashas Bracious is really concluding with the transition from Adam to a more hopeful savior and patriarch of mankind, Noah, Parashas Noah is segue from the imperfect patriarch Noah to a more patriarch perfect Av and patriarch, spiritual patriarch of all mankind, in addition to Paul And that is our point. The symmetry is so magnificent. Every part of Parshas Noah directly aligns with Parshas Bracious. It is a take-two. Same issues, similar challenges, Baby steps up improvement, showing that the Rebunashalom is going to remain at this. And accept subtle improvements in a take too. Because ultimately, because he stays with Noah, Noah the person, Noah the parasha, and Avram is able to emerge, and Akhalisrael is able to emerge, a meaningful world is able to emerge. But it takes time. And the lesson to us, to Akhalisrael, to humanity, is our projects fail. Fail. Our Sheva Again and again and again and again. But you pick yourself up and you push at it. And every step, one step closer. And then eventually you make it. May we all be Zoha to possess the grit and courage to renew and redo in this ever continuing cycle of Tika, which is life. Thank you very much.